0: Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change, and I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club.
1: Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time.
2: Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know. That addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care With heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24 7 year round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1 888 Recovery Now.
1: Hey everyone, Megan here. Before we get to this week's podcast, I want to say a couple of things. The first is a big thank you. The podcast launched just over a month ago, and the response has been overwhelming, with thousands of downloads for each episode and tons of enthusiastic comments and helpful suggestions. The podcast is currently free, and I'm committed to keeping it that way. But in order to do that, I need your support. So you know what's coming. I have set up an unspeakable Patreon page. There you have the opportunity to subscribe at three different levels, in return for which I'm offering a number of benefits and opportunities. They range from early access to the podcast, access to bonus content, in some cases, entirely separate interviews not available to the public, and the opportunity to join private forums and live video streams. And just so you know, I already have an amazing interview available on the page for subscribers at the second level tier. It's a long and pretty intimate conversation I had with comedian Chelsea Handler late last year at her home. We talk about all sorts of things sex, dating, not having children. The changing nature of comedy, and how she had to go to sexual harassment training during the shooting of her Netflix documentary, Hello Privilege, it's me, Chelsea. If you're interested, become a patron at patreon.com slash theunspeakable, and you'll be able to hear it right now, plus all sorts of other extras in the near future. In any case, I'll say it again. I'm so grateful to you for listening to the podcast, and I'm excited to continue to bring it to you. And with that, here's episode six
0: we argued that um, by observing thousands of dog gentles and unwanted humping in dog parks we could um, confidently declare that nightclubs were rape condoning spaces and men should be trained like dogs using black feminist criminology which clearly has no relevance there at all. We also argued that um, people could become more feminist. Men could become more um, feminist and less transphobic by inserting dildos into their anus. And this was um, apparently tested and, and argued for. And we argued that fat bodybuilding should be a thing because the only reason we admire bodies that are built with muscle and not ones that are built with morbid obesity is because we
1: have been conditioned to be fat phobic. Welcome to the sixth edition of The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm Megan Daum. My guest is author Helen Pluckrose. Her new book, which she co-wrote with James Lindsay, is Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. If you're at all familiar with the so-called woke wars, or the ideological divide between traditional liberals and the progressive left, you may have heard about how the social justice ideology that's come to dominate the new left is undergirded by philosophical movements like postmodernism, critical theory, and standpoint epistemologies that inform books like the currently massively popular White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. But what do those terms mean exactly? And are they really a useful framework for creating a more just society? Helen explains all of that and more in our conversation. She also defines and explains the term intersectionality, which, admit it, you probably don't fully understand, even though it's everywhere now. That alone should be worth the price of admission. I probably should have put it behind the Patreon. It's that valuable. But I give it to you for free as a public service. So here's my interview with Helen Pluckrose. Helen Pluckrose, thank you for being on the Unspeakable podcast. Thank you for having me. This book, which you've written with James Lindsay, is one of those that I think we've desperately needed, but perhaps not quite realized just how desperately. People from any number of ideological camps on the left and the right and everywhere in between, who've found themselves confused and exasperated by certain, I guess you could say dogmatic manifestations of social justice activism, Mm -hmm. really don't always understand what's underneath all of it. So I think this is a really useful and not to mention incredibly thorough and rigorous kind of guidebook. Can you just tell us what made you decide to write it and what you're hoping people will take away from it?
0: Well, we're trying to sort of make the underlying worldview more comprehensible because it's really quite counterintuitive. And it's not as complicated as people think it is because they'll read an abstract of the theory and they'll think, I could never get my head around that. It can seem more daunting and complicated than it is when really it is just a couple of principles and a few themes that just get recycled in different contexts. And once you get your head around them, it's much easier. I would say to to disagree with them to counter them but also if you want to take some of their their insights if you think it has value it's it's easier to do that as well i want it to be submittable to the marketplace of ideas which it currently isn't
1: <laughs> Well say more about that like why do you think uh there's been such a resistance to actually figuring out what's behind the kind of popular versions we're seeing of of this kind of sensibility
0: well, I think for for most people it, it just doesn't seem to make much sense and it isn't very interesting. And to be fair, to get really into this, you do have to spend several years studying it before it slots into place and you can kind of map it out. Because otherwise it doesn't it doesn't sink in and I think if you if you want to address something you have to have really quite a lot of it and um, very few people spend significant time reading ideas and theories that they don't think has value. So there's just not many people doing that. So sometimes when people will critique it, it will be um, too shallow or it will misunderstand something quite central. And so we we wanted to really break it down.
1: So Helen, what is your background? You're often referred to as the British academic Helen Pluckrose. (laughs) So that's a little mysterious. (laughs) Can you tell us where you're coming from with all of this
0: yeah i um I didn't go to university until I was in my thirties. I was a uh, um in nursing and, and social care for for most of my time, but then after I had a stroke, I went to university and I studied English literature at undergraduate and then um late medieval and early modern writing at postgraduate and my area of interest is looking at the ways in which late medieval Women and early modern women negotiated the Christian narrative to get um, to attain authority and autonomy for themselves, which was lacking at these times. So that's my area of interest. But I'm always interested in ideologies and narratives and how people make moral meaning and purpose out of them. So I've carried on doing that kind of thing. Um, Peter, Jim, and I, we were all quite involved in that new atheist moment. So we've been quite critical of um, religious narratives that weren't rooted in evidence and had quite a liberal tenet. So it really just kind of made sense to, to address this um, social justice thing when it, it came up and it started behaving in the same ways, when it started being anti-science, um, illiberal, anti-freedom of speech, anti-freedom of belief. So yes, it, it was definitely somewhere we were going to end up. <laughs>
1: So this is fascinating. Did you grow up in a religious family?
0: No, my parents were both atheists, but I became religious because we have Christian teaching in schools over here. So I had myself baptized and confirmed and I became very religious. And then I, um, I got quite ill over it. I, just, I had um, suffered from OCD known as scrupulosity, which was related to the religious
1: Wait, wait. Scrapulosity is that like the religious term for OCD? I've never heard that. It's it's much sounds much better than OCD.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's a. F- A variant on it. It's when you, because you know, with the OCD, you've got the obsessive and the compulsive part. Right. So the obsessive part is the the thoughts. And so when you have, it's sometimes just called religious OCD or scrupulosity, is when you're examining yourself very, very closely, and that you're always afraid that you've done something wrong, you've harmed someone, you've committed a sin. And this is a, a form of OCD, which is quite difficult to treat. So I, I suffered from that. And it's it's sort of also given me a bit of insight, because when I'm reading the work of people like Robin DiAngelo, and she's relating her own unconscious bias, I have a very strong <laughs> connection with this. I, I really think there is something psychological and obsessive going
1: on there. We are talking about the emergence of a movement really in academia initially, but ultimately in the culture more broadly, that is sort of taking the theoretical, a substitute for reality. Um, And we're seeing it play out in different sorts of ways. And we're seeing it um, really come across mostly, like, in terms of purity policing would be one of the terms, or let's just have it, I want to just for our listeners, like, let's throw out a couple of concrete examples. What were the kinds of things you were seeing um, as an academic when you were an academic? Was this movement afoot? Were you seeing this kind of dogmatism? um, Or is it something that you've noticed more in the last couple of years?
0: Yeah, I I saw it both in an academic and in an activist context. So I was um, considered problematic for saying that sexual selection was real and might go some way to explain why men are particularly attracted to young and beautiful women and women are particularly attracted to successful men, that was um, considered heresy. It became increasingly difficult to address um, women's issues and women's social history if you have to assume that absolutely everything is culturally constructed. That isn't how it works in men and women's different approach to religion for example and I really wanted to take that up and look at it but um it just wasn't possible and then in activism because I was combining my liberal feminism with my um secularism at this point and I was trying to give some support to ex-muslims and um feminist and lgbt activists um muslims and I was having so much difficulty with um intersectional feminists insisting that this was racist Meanwhile, you know, liberal and ex-Muslims that are trying to address some quite serious misogyny and homophobia and not getting any support with that. So this kind of inconsistency of of principles really, in the end, it, that caused me to write the essay, Why I No Longer Identify as a Feminist, because I think that the concept just crept so much I could no longer really... Um, you know, I define myself by it. I still am particularly focused on gender issues and committed to gender equality. And I'm more interested in average on how women experience things. But feminism isn't something I can get behind anymore.
1: The fact that you came from the real world, like the fact that you were a nurse and a care worker and then went into academia, that's an unusual route, to say the least do you think that the fact that you were not like somebody who was an academic from the very beginning that you had experience in uh, quote unquote reality made these sorts of things um, seem all the more absurd and troubling to you?
0: Um, quite possibly. I mean, I never qualified as a nurse. I, I did some training and worked in some hospitals, but generally, yeah, the sort of minimum wage care work for elderly and disabled people. So I think, yeah, I was a care assistant married to a forklift driver and we weren't exactly, you know, we're living from paycheck to paycheck. But I don't think that this is a sort of a a class issue. You know, my, my background, my parents' background is quite solidly middle class. I was privately educated. So there's a whole lot of influences in there. But I think the important thing for me was having had some problems with magical thinking and a really quite intense and negative relationship with religion. And then having used some tools to overcome that and to, you know, developed a strong sense of the importance of evidence-based epistemology and consistently liberal ethics, that has just been the thing that has guided everything I've ever done
1: since. (laughs) Now, talk about your article. Is it Why I'm No Longer a Feminist? Was that the title? Yeah. And when did it appear? And was that sort of your first shot over the bow in terms of your involvement in this whole intellectual sphere?
0: I think so, yes. That was the first one that went viral. I wrote it in 2016, and I'd already been arguing online for about five years that there was a problem um, within feminism, but that, that feminism was still very much needed. I was arguing with people who were saying that feminism had lost the plot, that it was no longer liberal, it was no longer effective. And I got into so many arguments about this. And then in the end, I, I just I just gave up. I just had to say, okay, you're, you're right. The movement known as feminism now is not, is not what I wanted it to be. It's, <laughs> I'm not helping I'm 46. I always identified as a liberal feminist. Yeah. So my mother was a second wave liberal feminist. She arrived in London in 1960 and she took on um, the bank that she worked for because they wouldn't let women... Take accountancy exams and she couldn't get a mortgage without a male guarantor. Right. So she addressed these very liberal issues. I have always thus thought of myself as a liberal feminist. I've dis- had disagreements with the radical feminists because they are the ones who believe that society is dominated by a patriarchy, by rape culture, that men are an oppressor class and women are the oppressed class. I could never agree with that. The liberal feminist is one who thinks society is already pretty good, but not everybody has equal access to everything. We don't want a revolution. We want to open things up for people who can't currently access. So liberal feminism is generally regarded by both the radical feminists and the intersectional feminists now as being too complacent about the status quo. Okay.
1: And since you said the word intersectional, I was hoping you could define intersectionality for us once and for all. This will be the definitive <laughs> the explanation. Okay, so there's
0: two symbols here that, that you need. And one um, comes from Kimberly Crenshaw, which um, is that, that of intersectionality. And the other comes from Patricia Hill Collins, which is the matrix of domination. So, what you have in both cases is this idea that people with multiple forms of marginalized identity can be hit by prejudice and discrimination in all sorts of ways that aren't easily detectable, that you can't easily pin down. So for Kimberley Crenshaw, she used the symbolism of of an intersection. And if somebody is black and a woman, and they are standing in the intersection, they can get hit by racism or sexism, or by a combination of both. So I think there's there's quite a lot of validity in this idea and particularly she was a legal scholar right and she um pointed out as did Patricia Hill Collins that there were specific stereotypes that accrued to black women they couldn't be straightforwardly be called sexism because they didn't apply to white women and they couldn't straightforwardly be called racism because they didn't apply straightforwardly to uh, black men. So there was something there that there needed to be a recognition. And if people are, are sceptical of this now, I tend to ask them, can you ever see a situation in which a combination of being straight, white, and a man could discredit you in any situation? If you can, <laughs> then there's. it should be quite clear that this can happen, you know? There is some basis for this idea of an intersectionality that we need to be, keep aware of this. Unfortunately, it became, well, it was always quite a problem because the first thing Crenshaw did was she, she defined intersectionality as contemporary politics, by which she meant quite radical politics from the, of the new left kind, applied to postmodern theory. So, this, she's beginning with a denial of objective reality, with a belief that everything is culturally constructed. And she explicitly took aim at liberalism, which aimed to get rid of, um, social significance from identity categories. So we didn't believe, you know, my doctor will be a man, my nurse will be a woman, my accountant will be white, my gardener will be Mexican or or whatever. So the liberal aim was to get rid of this significance. And this means focusing less on identity. doesn't mean being blind to racism or sexism. That is frowned upon and opposed as needed. But it does mean we don't focus constantly on identity. We try and make it irrelevant for moral Um, purposes. But um, Kimberley Crenshaw and the others who are sort of rising at at that time, including um, Bell Hooks, Patricia Hill Collins, they saw a need for a focus on identity politics over universal liberalism. They wanted to put their power within the identity group. And this, I think, was bound to go horribly wrong. I think it was bound to cause division, cause tribalism, the rejection of um, any kind of stable reality and the assertion that everything is culturally constructed in that the service of power was just going to make everything messy and hostile. And and that's essentially what's happened.
1: You organize your explanation of postmodern thinking into six concepts in the book. So there's the knowledge principle, which has to do with radical skepticism and whether objective truth or knowledge even exists. There's postmodern political principle, the belief that society is formed around systems of power and hierarchies. And then you talk about the blurring of boundaries, the power of language, cultural relativism, the loss of the individual and the universal. So, you know, I I can imagine how this kind of gets toyed with in academia and, you know, like a a very kind of abstruse academic paper. But can you talk a little bit about how you see this play out just in popular culture? I mean, I'm assuming when you wrote your piece about how you were no longer identifying as a feminist in 2016, I mean, that was before Me Too, Mm -hmm. but it was really, I'm assuming you were reacting to a sort of iconography of quote unquote intersectional feminism. And so I'm wondering, like, you could talk about how you kind of piece this whole puzzle together?
0: Yeah, I mean, what we see in popular culture, and this is where it's getting its power from, you know, so yes, you can get quite complicated in academic papers, but really, these same principles are quite um, straightforward. And we we all see them. Whenever we have a claim that people need to stay in their lane, that white men can't talk about this, that um, cisgendered people can't talk about this. This is the idea that knowledge is not objective; that knowledge comes from experience. You know, I I have my truth, you have your truth. Your truth has already been spoken too much. We have to listen to, um, listen to black women, listen to trans women, but only the ones who agree with intersectionality, obviously. So that's where we get the the sort of denial of um, of objective truth, and we we see that most explicitly in areas like um, queer theory. And trans activism. So there's, you know, that there is um, certain um, evidence in neuroscience, which may well, at some point soon explain to us why some people are trans so that there is an objective truth there. But a lot of the trans activists want to break down those boundaries between male and female, masculine, feminine, heterosexual, homosexual they see them as explicitly oppressive. And so any language which kind of um, insists on categories of objective truth is seen as oppressive. And this is why sometimes the most extreme trans activists who who do not at all represent the majority of trans people can really seem quite delusional to the sort of average person who doesn't you know, want any harm to come to any trans right, people. but right. So yeah, th- this is the kind of example we see of this. We see the power and privilege, the systems of... So let the, the political principle is the, the one to really get your head around. It's this idea that we create reality with the way we talk about things. Now, powerful people in society powerful groups have decided what kind of talking about things is legitimate and what kind isn't. And then everybody else, it throughout society speaks in these ways, which perpetuates these systems of power, privilege, oppression.
1: And these ideas, sorry to interrupt you, the powerful people are like, would be stereotypically white men, straight white men, men, cis straight white men. And is the thinking that These ways of talking about things have been established, like, centuries ago, millennia ago, decades ago. Like, how far back do they trace it? A lot of it, especially from
0: Foucault, he focuses, um, particularly when it comes to things like sexuality from the 19th century, but he takes a very long historical Look, and this is what we will see in a lot of the activism as well. They see these systems as having been set up at certain times and then just evolving rather than improving. So a a big part of critical race theory is the claim that things aren't actually getting better. Racially, They just change what they look like. So you have slavery at first, then you have Jim Crow. Now you have um, the carceral system. It's all the same thing. It's all um, white supremacy, whiteness, the privilege and trying to control and oppress the black person. But it, it looks different in each age. So what these kind of theorists and activists consider their job to be is to make these systems of power and privilege visible. And they do this in a highly interpretive way where they will close read what somebody has said. They believe that there is always a power imbalance going on. So one of the ten- central tenets of critical race theory that was um, set up by a group including Robin D'Angelo is the question is not did racism occur, but how did racism manifest in that situation? So you begin with the assumption that any interaction between a Black person and a white person is going to have racist elements, and then you try to find evidence of it.
1: You were part of a now infamous academic hoax a few years ago, commonly referred to as Sokol squared. That's a reference to another famous hoax from the mid-1990s put forth by the physicist Alan Sokol, who, in trying to prove how intellectually lazy certain academic fields had become, got a paper published in a leading cultural studies journal, basically arguing that reality didn't exist. I can't remember the exact details of his thesis, but... In 2017, you and your co-author James Lindsay, who's a mathematician, along with a philosophy professor Peter Boghossian, wrote, I think, 20 fake papers using mm-hmm. trendy but frankly absurd jargon in an effort to see if you could get them published. A number of them were. Can you describe some of the papers and how they were received by editors as well as other academics?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's often sort of misunderstood about our project, especially when it's um compared to Alan Sockles, is that while Alan took a lot of the the jargon and then, I mean, if if you're a physicist, the paper he wrote is extremely funny because he's deliberately reversed things. It's lost on me because I'm not a physicist, but it was nonsense and it was intended to be nonsense. What we did, which was very different um, to what Alan Sokol did, was we actually reproduced the arguments. Our papers are indistinguishable from ones that are published completely sincerely. Some of our data is fake, and they should have recognised that it was either impossible, implausible, or certainly that we were drawing unwarranted conclusions from it. But the rest of the theoretical papers are just solid scholarship of the kind that they wanted to publish. So if they are not ashamed of that, they should actually keep it up there, even if we didn't believe in it. So we argued, for example, that there is no legitimate way to criticise social justice. Anybody who does this in any way is being a bully. Only marginalised people can use humour. Anybody who uses humour to, to laugh at um, the social justice excesses is, is being a bully, they're using disparagement, humour, they should be punished. That one got accepted fastest of all. Then we had some really silly things that people remember, whereas we, when we argued that um, by observing thousands of dog gentles and unwanted humping in dog parks, we could um, confidently declare that nightclubs were rape-condoning spaces and men should be trained like dogs using black feminist criminology, which clearly... <laughs> Has no relevance there at all. We also argued that um, people could become more feminist, men could become more um, feminist and less transphobic by inserting dildos into their anus. And this was um, apparently tested and, and argued for. And we argued that fat bodybuilding should be a thing because the only reason we admire bodies that are built with muscle and not ones that are built with morbid obesity is because we have been conditioned to be fat phobic so that they're, they're really they're nonsense papers they're not only absurd they're also really unethical in their conclusions
1: so yeah unethical how how do you mean un- i can see where they're absurd but what do you mean by unethical
0: well, we argue that, the, that we always find that the problem in any situation is that men are horrible.
1: For example,
0: <laughs> that was the, right. the thesis that we got um, published over and over again. You know, one of the uh, papers was we were looking into why men like to look at attractive, scantily clad women. Now, the answer to most people would be because most men are heterosexual. But we had to argue instead that it was because they valued patriarchy and they wanted to dominate women. And, you know, th- this was one of the ones that got published. It's, I think with the, the most unethical one of all, but nobody ever remembers this paper because it wasn't funny, is the one that's called When the Joke's on You, in which we argued that you just cannot no criticism of social justice ideas is is legitimate at all. It needs to be shut down. It needs to be punished. You know, there's a part of us that was hoping that Hypatia, who accepted it, would actually say, no, this is unethical. This is authoritarian. We can't publish something saying this. But they accepted it in nine days. They called it an excellent contribution to feminist philosophy.
1: And do they ask for any edits? What kind of editorial process is there, if any?
0: Yeah, they didn't ask for a lot for that one, but um, with some of them, yeah, they wanted us to make things more insane. In many ways, they um, they wanted us to take some of the evidence out. They said that our our data would be confusing and just to to remove it at one point and not um, and just make the claims without it. They asked us to yeah. We, we included um, oh, I can't even remember his name. He's one of your left-wing um public um figures a comedian john somebody we, we had to um we were asked to put in that he was a white privileged man john stewart
1: so we were, the the, the daily so, show yes. oh my goodness
0: yeah there, there was um i mean when we wrote our piece which um a paper which was essentially a rewrite of mein Kampf um <laughs> We just bent the theory to to fit it. So uh, intersectional theory. It's not, you know, some people have said we, we just uh, took uh, Jews out and put men in, but it, it wasn't that simple. We had to bend the theory around it. But the totalitarian language was the same. They asked us to change that because they were afraid that we were too liberal. Wow. And <laughs> they wanted us to be more social justice because there's a there's a real negativity towards liberalism in in the whole the whole field. I think they spend more energy criticising liberals, by which I, I mean the, the philosophical tradition, you know, it's, right. it's more common on the left, but it doesn't mean the left. But that um, value for freedom of speech, freedom of belief, reforming things, making people more free and more equal. So they're more hostile to that than they are to um, properly conservative ideas, or even um, downright sort of far right ideas. Really? really but one of the central tenets that comes up over and over again is crit- in critical race theory is critique of liberalism it doesn't say critique of conservatism and obviously you know there's a matter they they see liberalism as the main competitor and it is and that that's why quite often people are Um, more annoyed with those who have the same aims but different methods than they are with people who have different methods. So people will often ask me why I, somebody who is still very much of the left, spend so much energy criticising another part of the left. And this is because this gets to me much, much more than whatever problems are happening on the other side. And this is how they feel too. They are after liberals and to a certain extent Marxists because we are not... We're looking at things in a much more sort of freedom-orientated viewpoint, diversity, you know, marketplace of ideas way, which they think is holding back the progress that they would like to see.
1: And again, just for people who are maybe not so familiar with the way the word liberal, liberalism has been sort of, the contours of it have changed over the last several years. I mean, I certainly grew up thinking there were liberals and there were conservatives. In the U.S. anyway. And Mm -hmm. that was the binary. Now we have progressives, which are different than liberals. So like when you encounter people like the editors at these journals and they want to criticize liberals, liberals are the enemy. What is the alternative then? Do they see themselves as progressives or is there another term? They would consider themselves um, social justice uh, scholars and
0: activists. Yes, they they call themselves progressives, but they also call genuine liberals progressives. It's a mess. When they criticize liberalism, it's very clear what they're criticizing. They're criticizing the idea of individual agency, of our common humanity, of meritocracy, of viewpoint diversity. All of these sort of solid things that underlie liberal secular democracies. So America is um, the most prominent example of a liberal secular democracy. It's still one, even though you have a Republican government, because it doesn't mean left. It means that you have the freedom to hold whatever beliefs you want. You have the freedom to say them. And this is um, what the social justice activists are See as a problem because they believe that language constructs social reality. They see people being able to um, say whatever they want as perpetuating oppression. They want to make very strong social and even legal sanctions for saying things like um, trans women are men or maybe Islam isn't a religion of peace. You know, I'm not um, taking either of those positions myself, although I have criticisms of um, both kinds of ideology. But this is the kind of thing that they think you really mustn't be able to say. So in my country, we've seen some arrests for people um, criticizing mostly uh, trans activism and Islam. That because of your First Amendment. But this is the threat to liberalism is is when you're no longer free to treat people as an individual. You're no longer free to believe or say what you believe.
1: Okay, I want to understand a few things about terms like postmodernism or post-Marxist. Now, I noticed that your book, it's called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity. You don't say how postmodernism made everything about race, gender, and identity. Although I have to say it is strange the way these terms, postmodernism, post-Marxist, post-colonial are getting thrown around by people who have sort of become enemies with them or are bucking up against these authoritarian tendencies in the left, and popular culture, but they don't understand those terms at all. I found myself in a rather bizarre conversation a few years ago with a right-wing media personality in in the U.S., someone who had probably never read a page of philosophy or critical theory, who felt he had very specific ideas about postmodernism and how it was the cause of everything annoying about liberals, kind of the same way conservatives would bat around the word socialism to describe everything they hated about Barack Obama, you know? Yeah. So can you just, like, explain to me what should I know about postmodernism and how much should I care
0: Okay, so Jim and I are thinking of writing another book in which we explain, look at all the currents that have gone into what we're seeing at the moment, because it comes from so many places. There is a bit of Marxism in there, but people put far too much focus on the Marxism. It's come so far away from Marxism now that you'll just be misled if you try to treat what we're seeing now as Marxism. There's so many different currents in there why I focus particularly on postmodernism is because of the central concepts around language, power, and discourse. Those are very um, specifically postmodern. So we've got this idea that everything depends on power. Power underlies everything. Whatever we see in society, it's always serving the interests of whoever is powerful in society. So then this legitimizes certain ways of speaking about things. They call these ways of speaking about things discourses. We have dominant discourses. That is um, very much a Foucauldian idea. Michel Foucault and his uh, discourse theories is the thing that comes up over and over again when we see this anxiety about language about who is are you upholding white supremacy are you upholding patriarchy cis normativity it's this this concept of of discourses and then this this constructs what is actually knowledge so it comes to the point where we're saying we believe that there are say psychological differences on average between men and women this cannot be accepted. They believe that if we say this is is true so for example some of the strong evidence that men are more likely to be interested in working with things, women are more likely to be interested in working with people, their socially constructivist ideas will believe that by saying that we make it true right and what we need to do is say the opposite of that and make everybody else say the opposite of that and then that will become true. So this idea of discourses, power and knowledge is ultimately postmodern. It's not how the Marxists see things. It's not how the liberals See things. The Marxists believed in an objective truth. They believed uh, philosophy would cure the false consciousness of the working class. And so they had confidence in language and reason and trying to get there. You know, the liberals, they have the marketplace of ideas. We believe that society has advanced so much in the last 500 years because people began to be able to make their arguments. They began to be able to say what they wanted, test ideas against each other. And this was how we advanced. This isn't what the postmodernists believe. They believe that it's always a matter of powerful dominant discourses and they always need disrupting.
1: It really is a version of magical thinking, isn't it? I've never really thought about it that way before, but you know, if you visualize it, it will manifest concept is very much what this is about. And I mean, yeah, I'm actually curious if you could talk a little bit more about your struggles with with OCD and this sort of hypervigilance and self-scrutiny, because that is definitely something you see among the more extreme activists. There's a real sort of self-punishing streak in a lot of these activists, the self-flagellation, they demand it in others, they demand it in themselves, they perform it. Maybe it's not a mm-hmm. performance, maybe it's legitimate. Like, what's the psychological component there? Like, is there a sort of personality profile that finds themselves more vulnerable or just more interested in this way of being in the world? I'm increasingly
0: believing that there is a much stronger psychological component than is being accepted at the moment. I think the people who are the really zealous social justice activists calling for um, cancellations and firings would be in a different context the ones you know calling for the execution of the apostate or the heretic. So I think this is a a psychological thing but I Jim and I we, we've spoken about this a lot because we know that we are not really qualified to make arguments about the psychological factors. We've started already um, contacting psychologists who are, and we're hoping that we'll be able to do something with their their support we don't want to go out there and write we think that this this kind of ideology is essentially producing something much like a personality disorder this this is what what we are are worrying when we we look at what we see so we've got for example the coddling of the american mind when um and and lukianov speak about how this kind of theory works in opposition to cognitive behavioural theory, whereas cognitive behavioural theory will train people to not catastrophize, to put things in perspective, to build their resilience, to respond appropriately. The, the kind of theory that we have now tells you that the opposite. If you're reading something that shows oppression, racism, sexism, heteronormativity to exist, well done, you're right. We know those things exist. If you spotted them, that is authoritative. So it's it's working against what some of the best theories in psychology and psychiatry tell us are healthy ways to live your life. I've had increasing numbers of psychologists and psychotherapists write essays for Aereo about this, for how they're seeing the effects of this, but we don't have a strong enough um, base in psychology yet to say anything that we could be confident about it would be a very bad idea to to make claims about mental health and psychology that weren't
1: true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you could have fun trying. I mean, you know, I'm certainly not the first person to make this uh, analogy between organized religion and this kind of social justice movement. John McWhorter has written about it a lot. Um, certainly many writers and observers have pointed out those similarities. But, you know, do you see a connection there? And is it possible that because people are just not going to church as often, and they don't have these kinds of um, community affiliations, they just are not as connected, that there's something intoxicating about being able to align yourself so vehemently with, with like-minded others on social media, particularly? Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I've, I'm awfully convinced that The social justice or critical social justice, as D'Angelo calls it, is providing for the same kind of social and psychological needs humans have as traditional religions have done. uh, Jim wrote a wonderful piece about this called um, Postmodern um, Faith. and It's on Aereo anyway. It's it's a really long piece about um, religion and um, the faith-based things because he studied the psychology of religion for, for three years and wrote a book on it. So, yeah, there's definitely very strong connections. But what worries me a little bit that some people are arguing, and it, it's often uh, American conservatives who are religious themselves, they're sort of making a moral argument that this is a consequence of people having moved away from Christianity. So they're regarding it as a kind of corrupt substitute for a healthier um, form of um, of moral and um, you know sort of
1: center of of being like that religion provides if twitter did not exist how much of this would exist yeah i used to argue against
0: that i used to say oh it's it's just a tool the problem is the reasoning that's being spread but i'm i'm starting to to think i was wrong about that that this um social media the connections with so many people the public nature of it really has brought out something quite unique, new, and, and nasty in ourselves that is, um, is doing a lot of damage.
1: I see these conversations going on on social media. Like, I follow this stuff closely, and it's sort of a- amusing and horrifying and, and all of the above. But, like, how big an issue is this really? Is even this sort of conversation kind of in the realm of the theoretical? Like, how much of this is actually affecting real people in their day-to-day lives?
0: I I think in certain realms, you can probably go through your life not knowing any of this is happening. You'd probably be quite safe, but you can't be sure of that. I've had to start a Discord server for people who are having a certain kind of anti-racist training imposed on them. And I've got 163 people now. I'm trying to help and support to push back at some kind of mandatory training or or reading that they are being asked to do, which is explicitly an attack on on freedom of belief. So I have white people telling me that they are expected to go to this meeting. They're expected to affirm that they are indeed racist. They're expected to say how they are going to dismantle the system of white supremacy. There, and there, It isn't an option to say, actually, I, I oppose racism from a different framework. I don't believe this. I also have a ridiculous number of um, Black and South Asian, mostly, people who are being expected to testify to a very certain understanding of racism, and they're under a lot of pressure to do so. They're afraid that they will be penalized if they don't see racism in the way the critical race theorists see it. If they don't have the critical social justice approach, if they are liberals or even conservatives, they still feel that they're under pressure to say, yes, racism is a system of power and privilege. It underlies everything. It's whiteness. It's, it's worrying because what we need, the way we should be thinking about this set of ideas, it is a belief system which people should be entitled to have, express, and live by, but not be imposed on anybody else. This is where the concept of secularism really needs to be expanded from just, you know, traditionally
1: understood religions to belief systems like this one. So this is amazing. You set up this Discord server, and are they coming to you for advice, for specific instructions, for just empathy? Like, how does it work exactly?
0: There's a, a great combination. There's a lot of reasons why people get in touch with us, but they were getting in touch with all of this. I was getting hundreds of um, emails a day at first, then it's it's slowed now to, to dozens. Jim was actually waking up to a thousand emails in the morning. And Mike Naina and Peter as well. We just couldn't manage it all.
1: Mike Naina is the filmmaker who was made a... Did he make a short film about your hoax or explain to us who he is? He, he's involved in a, um, a quite a lot of, sh- of shorter documentaries
0: and he's planning a, a full length one. He's very knowledgeable now about the, the theory. He's gone right into it. So, he's, okay. um,
1: so you guys are all hearing from people from all over the world. Do they tend to be in the UK and the, in the US or where do they come from? What seems to be happening? The
0: people who reach out to me seem to be mostly either British or women. <laughs> Not in, only one or the other, though. Yes. <laughs> Well, the Americans I get tend to be women. I think okay. most people have been going to gym because most people are American and they're seeing him um, addressing it. But there's still an awful lot coming to me. And yes, most people are coming because they're being expected to do some kind of anti-racist training, which has assumptions that they don't think are either true or ethical. And they want to be able to push back at this Without losing their jobs, so we're we're doing that. But there's also a lot of people, and this is particularly women, who are socially afraid. They're scared that they're going to say the wrong thing, that they're going to get dogpiled on social media, that um, their Facebook groups will turn on them, and this is also their social circle in in real life. Right. So it, there's really quite a level of fear. I had a young woman write to me and and. In a real state, she was an um, American woman in her early 20s and she'd disagreed with a, a lady on a, a group chat who was um, Pakistani and was immediately accused of racism and then suddenly all of these people who she'd got on great with were just suddenly descending upon her and nothing she could say. Mm. Um, she she apologised, it didn't work and she was in a really terrible state. She was messaging me saying, I'm so frightened. I'm so frightened. What am I going to do? And I'm, this is a ridiculous state of affairs. And that's what I'm seeing a lot. Women have seemed to be particularly vulnerable to the social side of it.
1: Yeah. You know, this is something I talked about um, with Heather Hying a couple of uh, weeks ago. I think that women, and again, them being very gender essentialist here, but I think that women... In the aggregate, not all of us are maybe more susceptible to in-group, out-group dynamics and exclusionary systems of social penalties and that sort of thing. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, like, the woman whose book club is reading White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo and doesn't want to read the book, the, the woman who finds herself in this position of, you know, being assigned this book by her club... And she doesn't want to read it. she maybe she's already read it, maybe she hasn't read it, but she knows enough about it to know she doesn't want to want to get into it. What should she say? How does she handle that situation? And can she even say anything without actually reading the book?
0: Well, it does certainly help to to read the book, but there are enough breakdowns of D'Angelo for people to know what they're likely to have a conscientious objection to if they do. so. We've been helping people to address quite a lot of these different situations. And the two most important things to convey is first that you are coming from a place of knowledge, not ignorance. It's not just that you need to be educated and then you'll understand. And that you're coming from a place of principles, not bigotry. You're not objecting to this approach to anti-racism because you want to be racist. So this is the two things to establish and then ask people if they can be more inclusive of a greater range of worldviews this is what we've had some success with. But I have to admit the success that most times we have been really successful with this approach is when the person who is objecting is black or South Asian. If a white person objects, they're much more likely to get dismissed. But we had a really good situation where a um, black guy said that he wanted his work to stop going on about whiteness and acknowledging their privilege to him because he experienced this as insulting because he'd worked very hard to get where he was. He didn't want to keep hearing how much more privileged everyone else was. He had a different value system, which was rooted in his culture. And it was about dignity and self-sufficiency, and it it needed to stop. And that worked really well, because they got back to him and apologized. And then his work backed off immediately from instituting the D'Angelo approach.
1: But that was because he was a black man. Yeah. Or maybe people of colour could make themselves available to, to, to white people as sort of, um, you know, kind of agents.
0: Then again, you know, we, it, there's a different level of risk there as well. I think sometimes people think white people are more at risk of uh, criticising anti-racism, but I'm not at all convinced that's true. Having spoken to, particularly in the UK, it's a lot of South Asian, Indian or Pakistani Bangladeshi women who are talking to me about this, and they are really worried that they won't only get accused by their workplace of supporting white supremacy, but they will also lose um, a lot of their supportive social circle. It feels like a much bigger risk to criticise anti-racist actions if you're supposedly a beneficiary of them they they often feel that like they have to go really really carefully uh-huh. into this because <laughs> right
1: yeah very very good
0: point being called a traitor to your own race i think is is possibly more painful than than just being called a a white supremacist. Oh, well, yeah,
1: well, but that's the thing with quote unquote cancel culture, right? You can only be canceled by your own side. So this idea that, oh, well, you know, the the right has been canceling the left forever, that doesn't square. That's not what what we're talking about. Okay, Helen, I wanna um, run by you three fairly well-known examples. Well, maybe two sort of well-known ones and not one less so examples of bullying in the name of social justice or just sort of high profile scenarios um, where these things have played out. And I'm hoping you can explain what the theoretical rationale or underpinnings might be for each of those. Okay, so the first one is the cancellation of JK Rowling. I think most people are probably a little bit familiar with this. Uh, JK Rowling has been accused of being a TERF uh, by trans activists. Uh, even though she's made pretty clear that she's not transphobic, has nothing against uh, trans people, but she just has certain feminist principles that don't exactly line up. So can you uh, tell us what's behind all of that? Yeah,
0: J.K. Rowling has taken the gender
1: critical position. So she
0: believes that woman is a biological category, that the difficulties that women face are um, directly related to their biology and the role that this has given them in life. So I don't agree with that. And many people don't. In her letter, she said that um, misogyny is increasing. I don't think that's true. However... This is a perfectly reasonable feminist position. She has perfectly reasonable concerns about how uncritically accepting trans women as women in every situation could affect women's sports, women's spaces. There's issues of fairness and safety, and we need really ethical people to be making these arguments. I think J.K. Rowling is one. But she's going to get pushed back at this. She's going to get called transphobic. It's going to be vicious because what she is doing is using her huge platform to make an ethical argument specifically against the trans position. And and I'm I'm sure she absolutely knew what would happen. And this is a a sacrifice that she's actually willing to make because she thinks the issue is so important. So for that reason, I have quite a lot of respect for her, even though I can't quite meet her where she is. But because this is a thing in, in language... People can't argue with her. So what we're hearing coming back, and you know, from some of the leading actors in um, Harry Potter, is just the mantra: "Trans women are women. Trans women are women. We, that trans women shouldn't be judged for who they are or told who they are. Trans women are women." This is the the discourse thing going on. They they want to reconstruct reality to make it fairer for trans people. This means that J.K. Rowling's argument cannot be responded to on its own terms.
1: Okay. So the second example is the cancellation, and I'm putting cancellation in quotes because who knows how long it's actually going to last, but the supposed cancellation of a data analyst named David Shore, Uh, this was in the U.S., who was fired for tweeting about a paper, not even tweeting his own paper or saying anything in the tweet. He tweeted about a paper by a Princeton professor that showed that peaceful civil rights protests were more effective than violent ones going out on a limb there. So that apparently violated some kind of progressive social norm dictating, as you mentioned earlier, that any criticism of any kind of protest is racist or something like that.
0: Yeah, I I think what David Shaw has walked into seemingly without knowing is the uh, sort of ongoing thing in critical race theory, where there is a debate about two different approaches to overcoming racism. So there was the liberation theology and uplift suasion. I don't know if you know about this. This was when arguments were made drawing on people like um, Du Bois saying that what um, black people need to do is be ultra respectable to get themselves educated, to be thoroughly law abiding. A respectability politics. Yeah. Yes. Respectability politics. And this was argued that this would make white America accept black people. And this caused quite a lot of religiousness and conservatism in black communities and blaming and and shaming of, of people who, who didn't um, fall in with that. So the reaction against this that we're seeing a lot at the moment from people like ta Coates, Ibram Kendi, Michelle Alexander, they're all pushing back at this saying that um, this was an attempt to to keep, this just keeps black people down. This is blaming them. So what's happened when David Shaw has made this study, which, which shows that actually it's more effective not to be violent, is he was seen as speaking into this uplift-suasion, respectability politics, liberation theology type discourse, which is very much out of vogue at the moment. So he probably has absolutely no idea of this. It's a particular problem because he was simply reporting an academic study and it's essential that people are able to do that. But he was accused of anti-blackness immediately was clearly confused about this and didn't know what was was happening. If you haven't looked into all of this theory, you just see people reading him into a particular discourse of power,
1: which he probably
0: has no idea right. even exists.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, just the idea that pointing something out is tantamount to endorsing it. It's so pervasive and it's so just illogical. But... It's all around us. Okay, so the third example, this is um a case many people might not be familiar with, and it's pretty astonishing and, and ultimately heartbreaking. This is a case of a man named Cedric Sunray, who is a social justice-minded college recruiter in the US who was fired in the wake of a privilege walk exercise gone terribly wrong at an Oklahoma City charter school that happened to have a, a diverse student population. I think he was actually with, um, I don't wanna get this wrong, but it was like a, some kind of Christian university in, in Oklahoma. So it's not like he was coming from <laughs> Oberlin or some liberal arts college where this would be part of the vocabulary. So he came to this school, he had the students line up And he asked them to line up according to their hair texture and skin tone. And the kids were totally confused and then extremely upset. This became a media story. um, And it was reported as an example of this just inexplicable, blatant racism. But, you know, it's funny when I read the story and I saw, oh, he's lining these kids up. He's asking him to do this. This is bizarre. You know, most people would say that, like, my God, what what a bigot. It was obvious that he was trying to do this intersectional exercise that you see a lot of going on, a lot of um, diversity and inclusion corporate training and on a lot of college campuses. But because he, you know, he didn't, it's not like uh, he was able to line them up according to anything other than skin tone and hair texture. It just came out totally wrong. So anyway, his response to all this was absolutely heartbreaking because he was coming from a place of real social justice activism in his mind but it completely bit him in the butt. So what do you have to say about that?
0: Yeah, I I think that that's another example of the what they call the eating their own and circular firing squads. But what this comes down to in a lot of the scholarship is the method of problematizing. So this is um, essentially the methodology of social justice um, scholarship and activism is that you try to read problems into things because the understanding is that these we're so accustomed to these systems of power and privilege that we can't see them which is where the idea of woke comes from these are the people who are able to see them to a certain extent there's a lot of incentive to problematize to see a problem with something now once that ball has started rolling mr sunray who i understand to be a white-skinned um but native american That's uh, right. man who's very much focused on on social justice activism yeah he there wasn't anything He could have done. What he's done now, I I was reading, is he's taken responsibility for it. He said that the students who are upset must not be be blamed or made to feel guilty. So he's still in that social justice space. He might survive, but he might not. And it's a problem because... There's nothing reasonable in this. He couldn't have done the right thing. And this is what's is going to happen to people within this space over and over again. They're going to try to do the right thing. Somebody is going to find a way to problematize something they've done. They try to explain themselves and then the deluge just comes all over them. We, we see it in, you know, Evergreen College. We saw it in the knitting community, at Ravelry, in um, young adult <laughs> books. People try to be woke, they get it slightly wrong. And then there's blood in the water and and everybody else is at them trying to prove their own superior wokeness because they've seen something that that person hasn't. It's horrible. It's so ugly.
1: So do you advise people to not apologize? Does this come up on on the Discord server? Did they say like, oh my gosh, I'm in this position now. I'm being attacked. How do I handle it? I would advise people not to apologise, yes. If they um, don't subscribe to these beliefs
0: in the first place, then I would advise people to say, I don't have that concept of racism. I am, I have principles of individuality. I have principles of consistently liberal ethics or, or how whatever the situation happens to be. Of course, a lot of the time, I'm trying to help people to keep their jobs. But I don't think apologising is going to work on a social level. It might do on an employment level because you can say something like, um, I wasn't, I I was ignorant and um, thank you for educating me. I will try to do better and it can pass off. That's unlikely to happen on social media. Mm. But if you're in a work, woke space, you know. The woke place. I'm calling it the woke place. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Anything you try and say after this has, has happened. You It's just going to make things worse. It's going to be problematized again. Once you've been identified as a target for problematization, that's it. You just really need to leave that space. That's what I said to the young woman who was so upset. Don't try to explain yourself to them. Just, just go away. That, that will make it die down quick is go back in a month and see what's happening. Because if you, the more you engage, the worse it's going to be.
1: Just by way of wrapping this up, your last chapter is devoted to alternatives to social justice ideology. So could you say briefly what some of those alternatives might be and whether you have hope that this is kind of going to blow over, that we're going to kind of that the pendulum is going to swing back to the center and we can kind of all get back to rational thinking?
0: Yeah, my, our aim in, in the last chapter of the book is to try to Give people confidence to push back from a principled position because we believe that the majority of people are liberal in that very broad sense. They want to treat people as individuals. They don't want a racist or sexist or homophobic uh, society, but they don't want this kind of theoretical extremism either. So we're trying to explain how it works. That was the first nine chapters of the book. In the last one, we're trying to explain how to push back at it. So you could be able to say quite confidently, I think racism is a problem. It continues to exist, it needs to be pushed back at, but we don't have to believe in invisible systems of power. We can believe in individuals' responsibility to not be racist and to oppose racism. So this is a liberal approach, which is very different to the social justice approach. And I think the problem that we're seeing now is that while most people have this liberal, this liberal sense of fairness, I won't judge you by your race, sex, you don't judge me by mine, they've never really had to defend this. And so they they get mostly confused. And what we need is for people to really be quite confident and just say, no, this isn't fair. This isn't consistent. I don't support it. As to whether I, I think this can can sort of come back to the centre. I'm getting less optimistic about that. I was hoping for a while that what would happen would be that increasing numbers of people would see the problem with the social justice approach, that it would lose respectability in the academy and that people would start to distance themselves from it. And then it would gradually subside. And then everyone would say we were, you know, making a moral panic about a problem that never existed. That didn't happen. And I think the the combination of people feeling an existential threat from the coronavirus and then the killing of George Floyd it just caused this all this sort of toxic theoretical activist stuff that's been bubbling up in little spots here and there throughout society has suddenly had an explosion now. So we are seeing a real attempted cultural revolution. And I, I don't think it can succeed. It's it's too inconsistent. It's too counterintuitive. And it's just not ethical or reasonable. So I'm still hoping that a pushback will be liberal, that it, it can be you know based on on liberal ethics which will allow us to keep the progress that we have made on racial gender and lgbt equality but my fear is that we're going to see a continuing surge to the right it's going to be a nationalistic populist right it's going to get confident it's going to squash critical social justice and then we'll have to have another fight against them to try and get back to right. <laughs> to a more liberal society
1: right well but maybe that's something that's sort of easier to wrap our minds around. Maybe there's, there's more room for um, bigger numbers of people coming together over something like that, because it's just more tangible. It's easier yeah. to understand. Well, your book has come along at the perfect time. So thank you, Helen, for speaking with me on the program. And um, congratulations to you and your co-author, James Lindsay, on the book. Thank you, Megan. It's been nice talking to you. you. That was my interview with Helen Pluckrose. She is the co-author, along with James Lindsay, of Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody, which is just out from Pitchstone Books. She is also the editor, by the way, of Aereo Magazine, an online journal focusing on current affairs. Helen spoke with me from her home in East London on August 21st. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. And you can listen there, too. Please consider supporting the podcast on its brand new Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash theunspeakable. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the new guest very soon on the website and the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi,
0: I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club
1: talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join
0: BJ's Wholesale
1: Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway.
2: Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania. Start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in